Welcome to The Conversation, the weekly show dedicated to helping you look, feel, and be your best self. I'm your host, Khalif, like a leaf on a tree, and today I'm having a conversation with two of my favorite journalists. They're here to talk about the HBCU experience, life before, during, and after. All this and so much more coming up next on the all-new Conversation. All right, everybody, I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready because today I'm sitting down with two of my favorite journalists, Char Josel and Justin Pye. And they are here, we are here to talk about the HBCU versus PWI experience. Now, I am currently a senior at Clark Atlanta University. Justin is an alumnus of Morehouse College and UC Berkeley. And Char is an alumna of Langston University. And Today, we're just going to talk with you about HBCUs. Are they still relevant? What made us choose to go to an HBCU and what we experienced at an HBCU? Also, what does post-graduation life look like? For anyone who feels afraid or anyone who feels like, I don't know what my next move is going to be after college, this conversation is for you. So we're going to be talking about all of this today on The Conversation But before we get into the conversation, if you're new to this show, make sure you go follow me on all social media platforms at The Conversation with Khalif. That's The Conversation spelled with a K instead of a C with K-A-L-E-A-F. So every now and then I like to ask my guest a random question and I'm going to ask two questions because we have two guests today. Um, So first, what books are you currently reading or what book um, are you looking forward to reading? So for me right now, um, I've already, I just recently finished two books, A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston by Robin Crawford. Uh, about it, sis. And uh, I just finished Michael Arsenault's I Don't Want to Die Poor. Right now I'm currently reading um, Brittany Cooper's book, Eloquent Rage. It's, it's, a, it's black feminist literature. Uh, mm. But I do have, what's, what else is on the docket when I'm done with this is um can't remember her name i think maybe ashley irby don't quote me on that but there's a collection of essays called wow no thank you and that sentence alone is just my brand so uh and and one of my editors for a publication that i'm a contributing writer for she actually referred this book so i have that and then i have george johnson's his just arrived today i don't know if you're familiar with george m johnson um i believe the title of his book is uh all boys aren't blue and so uh, I'll be, that, that's what's been going on in the quarantine for Shar as far as books. So what about you, Justin? Books, books. So uh, like Shar, I finished a song for you uh, a little bit ago, actually, and, and, and gifted it to a friend. That book, if you love Whitney the way I love Whitney, <laughs> that book was just, it was such a beautiful, beautiful tribute to her life and her inside story. And and it was just, yeah, there's so many layers to that. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but um, truly, truly loved that book. And um, I'm looking forward to starting a George book, George's book, uh, All Color Boys Aren't Blue. I haven't ordered that yet, but that's on my docket. I know it just came out the other day. I, I believe this. Yeah, t- it just came out Tuesday. Mine got here fast as hell. Like there's tons <laughs> of orders I have floating out there, but George's arrived today. I wasn't even expecting it today. So yeah. I'm so excited for that man in this project. And um, I need to dig into that. And I also need to dig into uh, Stay Woke, which is uh, Justin Michael Williams meditation book. Um, it's mm-hmm. super 
thick and colorful and exciting. It has like some kind of workbook elements to it. So I kind of should have been in that this entire quarantine because he needs some work. But um, uh, yeah, that's that's where I am. So, Shar, it didn't take much research to figure out that you and I have a mutual love and respect for Miss Hosea, Wendy Williams. And I just would like for you to share why you love Wendy Williams. So one of the reasons that I love Wendy, first of all, I there are a few journalists that I stand for, and I do consider Wendy a journalist because she does have her, her, her journalism degree. Um, but there are a few, like I love Oprah, I love Tamron Hall, I love Diane Sawyer, um, I love George Stephanopoulos. There's a few, you know, I like Don Lemon, but Wendy in particular, I think what connected me to her is I did a shift when I graduated from undergrad. Uh, I started in uh, what's considered hard news, like the Channel 7. And if you look behind me, you'll see the accident and all of that. Mm -hmm. And there were certain, um, you know, components in hindsight that I can recognize that were at play where I realized I would never be able to work in that field. Um, I feel like I crawled so one of my little sisters behind me will be able to run, walk, and soar. That's, I'll just put it that way because it was very, um, it's, a, it's a weird industry, even though I still enjoy hard news. So I made a pivot because I enjoy pop culture. Um, I'm a pop culture enthusiast. I stay on top of it. It's just always been my thing. I was the girl holding it down at the lunch table, you know, telling you everything that happened from fifth period to track number five on Destiny Fulfilled. That ju that's just who I always have been. Mm -hmm. And so I connect with Wendy because I can respect what it is that she does. Uh, I'm not, I'm not mean spirited in my delivery. Like there's a lot of things that I do not like about Wendy. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, just overall, I just, she's a good time, at least through the TV. I don't know her personally, but through the TV, she's a good time. And I, I prefer TV Wendy over radio Wendy because radio Wendy, I couldn't stand, what? but hindsight and reading and learning more about her, I understood the nature of the beast. As a black woman in this field, it was almost like you had to do whatever you could at any cost to stand out, you know? And so she, um, and I really marvel at her career. I like the way that she thinks. I've read books, I've read interviews. I like the way she thinks as, as far as like drive and hustle. Mm -hmm. I love uh, stories that really map out like, you know, uh, certain paths and and wendy for sure if you know her story and if you don't know it you might want to look it up it's one to marvel at just to see how she has gotten from point a to point b to point c and so uh that that's why i connect with her she just seems fun through the tv she keeps me laughing even yeah. though we do you know we do have our disagreements who's calling me oh, I can't write now. um even though we do have our disagreements uh but that's why i like wendy so have you read her book wendy's got the heat no, you know, I have not read that, but I have friends that have, and they really enjoy it. I, I planned on reading it, but it's right now it's not on my reading list. I'm, I'm reading too many damn memoirs and, and biographies <laughs> right now. And so, like, I'm trying to escape. That's why I'm branching off to different types of books, like I was telling you, like collections of essays and eloquent rage. I'm, I have way too many memoirs and, uh, and autobiographies, but I do have a, a signed copy of Ask Wendy, because I did meet Wendy six years ago in Chicago um, and got to shake her hand and talk to her and it's signed behind me. So I, I do have that. 
And then I was at her star, you know, she got her star on the walk of fame yeah, back in October. And so I went to that and stuff. So I still have not been to the damn show though. That's, that's so. like my goal. But I did yeah. attend like a, a, what was it called? It was this um, 10 year celebration type of 10 city tour she did. And she came oh, to yeah, Atlanta. Oh yeah, yeah, that's how I met, yeah. That's when I met her when she came oh. to Chicago oh, wow. for the second one. So Justin, I just want to ask you, who is your like, inspiration or some people you look up to in the industry you know if if you were to ask me that question 15 years ago i would totally be able to give you uh an accurate answer but that answer today is really the same as it was back then um and i think maybe that's a problem i think i, I probably need to kind of see who out there is doing work that that I admire, that I might aspire to. But I think in many instances, and I think a lot of creatives um, in this kind of climate, we find ourselves feeling and saying like, oh, like, yeah, but nobody's really doing it the way I want to do it. So you really kind of like, mm. but growing up, um, my role models were two or three women, um, Oprah, of course, uh, I, I listen to her every word. She, she, I, I stopped eating cow when she said it wasn't right. <laughs> Look, I started saving my my little pennies when she was like, when she said you can spend your cash and save your coins. I started collecting my piggy bank. Um, Oprah was a great guy for me, and um, also one of my greatest influences is Queen Latifah. She, oh. You know, when I was coming up seeing her, I, I said, "This is the one woman that has done." everything in the world I could possibly ever want to do in my life. Like at that time, I was like, you know, she's been an, an, an actor, a singer. She's been on Broadway. She's a producer. She's a director. She's a model. She's an author. She's, she's gorgeous. She's yeah. And that hair, I mean, that hair. <sighs> like if there was, if, if, if a Brazilian press was never pressed again. <laughs> so yeah, I um I, I think it's really interesting. It kind of even back to a little bit of a segue back to what Shar was saying though about all of the the people that she looked up to. Uh, all the people she named at first were badass women, and in my experience, especially in this industry, you know, men get a lot of praise. Mm -hmm. uh, and men are often like big, you know, leading figures, like known as like the top. Like if you think about the top journalists, it's like Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, mm -hmm. this person, but these when you get into these newsrooms behind the scenes the people doing this work strapping the boot leather and all of that stuff that we say it is women it is women that are like answering the call and that's not giving up on these stories doing these investigations there's a whole bunch of women and so yeah i'll just say that and that's uh, i think why a lot of my my inspirations have been um these badass black women um, yes. because, yeah you're listening to The Conversation with Khalid. All right, so it's time. It's time to get into the meat. It's time to get into the topic, the discussion for today. We are talking HBCU versus PWI experience, and I'm here with Shar Josel and Justin Pye. So, Shar, I'm just going to start off by asking you um, to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening who may or may not be familiar with who you are. I adore you. And, Justin, you can go right after Shar. Um, well, um, my name is Shar Josel. I am an entertainment and lifestyle journalist, uh, freelance here in Los Angeles. I write, I talk, 
I'm seen, I'm heard. And um, yeah, I mean, I've been in Los Angeles for about, it'll be six years in June. And I have been, uh, I'm originally from Chicago. I attended undergrad in Oklahoma, believe it or not. Yes, in Oklahoma. Um, and, and so, yeah, I've been in the field of journalism since roughly like 2008. And so this journey has, for me, has been about sharpening my skills. And I think that it's been unwavering dedication to the craft and kind of um, really, really utilizing the networking that I've attained uh, that got me where I am today. You know, just making sure that all of my I's are dotted and my T's are crossed and I'm and I'm a big, I'm big on professionalism. And so I hope this is answering your question. Oh, yes. but, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's just a little, just a little professional history for me. There's nothing more that I enjoy doing than having the honor. I, I recognize the, the gravity of the responsibility of having a hot mic in front of you or having a teleprompter in front of you or, you know, fact checking an article before you submit it to an editor. And it really is just like my favorite thing to do. Um, I, I love journalism so much. It gets me it's like a natural high, but a specific, a specific type of journalism. Like I'm no political journalist. I'm no okay. sports journalist. I got to do what I, what I know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I think I could be political and sport sports journalist if that were the assignment, but Staying in my wheelhouse of what I know for sure, shout out to Oprah, um, has certainly worked to my benefit. Shari, you just, every time you speak, I just, I just want to be a better person. I really <laughs> <Yes>. do. <laughs> like, literally, I was like, oh my gosh, like, literally before this, um, I mean, before I even contacted you, I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to get all my research together, want to be, like, on point. Like, I don't know, you just have that. <laughs> about yourself that's really well, it's really you. admirable thank you thank you um so I justin you i mean shout out to morehouse but you went to morehouse and studied journalism at uc berkeley am i correct justin you went to morehouse i am a morehouse man yes house I'm Sorry. a Park Atlanta University student. Soon I'm to learning be something tonight, conversations with Khalif. Thank you. Oh, wow. If you're a Clark Atlanta student currently? Yes. Awesome, dude. All right, AUC representative. Ow. <laughs> I wanted to go there. They have a delicious journalism program at CAU. Are you from Atlanta? Uh, no, I am from this little windy city known as Chi-Town as well. <laughs> oh, okay. Chicagoan. Okay. Got nice. That. Okay, but go ahead. Sorry, I, I just interject. <laughs> uh, well, my little like quick 30 second story. Uh, I was born in LA and uh, went to like high school and stuff in St. Louis and college in Atlanta. I ended up teaching at a college preparatory academy in Massachusetts uh, for a couple years after undergrad, um, which was similar to being at a PWI. Um, and then I moved to LA before going to Berkeley where I got my uh, master's in journalism. And I just wrapped up a semester. So since for the past however many years I've been working in the field for several different um, organizations in a lot of different capacities. And I just wrapped up my first semester as an adjunct at USC. And so uh, my experience with, with um, HBCUs versus PWIs has been multi-layered uh, over the years. 
So I'm just going to dive right into our topic of discussion for today. So a lot of people, well, not people, students, high school students all over the country are graduating. And if hopefully they were proactive enough not to just be starting to look for places to go in terms of college. But um, there's this whole, at least for black students, I mean, maybe some who aren't black students of uh, wondering if they should go to a HBCU or a PWI. So my questions to both of you would be, what made you choose an HBCU? The school that I chose, I always, I went on a, on a college tour, which is like, I feel like a Midwestern tradition. A lot of mm-hmm. people I talk to in, on the West Coast don't know nothing about a damn college <laughs> tour. But I feel like it's like more so Midwest. I don't even know if it's a down South as far as like Texas. But anyway, when I was 17, I went on an HBCU uh, college tour with my friend's church. And we toured the Southeast as far as like FAMU, Emory, Park Atlanta, Morehouse Spelman. Um, We were all down in those parts, Xavier, Tennessee State, all on a bus. Wow, we really did that. I think we were gone for a week too, maybe a week and a half. But anyway, so I knew I wanted the HBCU experience. It was was different because I'm from the Chicagoland area and... uh, my high school, the, the schooling that I experienced from kindergarten up through senior year of high school was very diverse. Um, we had people from all different walks of life. You know, I can remember being in second grade and Rachel Colton's mom bringing potato lockies and dreidels and we learned about the Jewish culture. Um, I can remember just all different types of stuff. Robin, I can't remember his last name, but he was the only Indian kid at the time that I had ever met you know this was like in great and we and my school district did a good job of um introducing new cultures and making sure that we understood new cultures so it was all different types of things but um i wanted a different experience i did not i had heard horror stories from pwis honestly Mm -hmm. um and i went to northern uh illinois is that what it's called northern illinois uh, Wait. NIU. NIU. Yeah. Northern Illinois University. I went there for some parties and I, I went to Lincoln. So I was in like Chicago, well, Illinois, PWIs. And I just didn't, I, it wasn't connecting with me. It felt so, it didn't feel like what I had come to know. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the best way for me to put it. The PWI experience from what I saw and what I experienced did not feel inclusive in the ways in which my kindergarten through senior year education was. And so I was being dumb. I was like, oh, I go to an all black church. Certainly I can handle it HBCU. Plus I liked the cultures of the HBCU when I went on the the tours and stuff and seeing the majorettes and the band life and just, and the men. Oh yes, I was one of those girls. I was like, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? So, um, I, I chose the school that I went to because that is actually my parents' alma mater. I, I went to oh. Langston University. That's where I, I have my degree from. And my parents both met there, thus were married, thus I was conceived. And oh. so they kind of were like championing for it, like try, try Langston. And so Langston was also one of the most affordable HBCUs. It's a small one, you know, it's not, it's not a big one. Clark Atlanta, Khalif, was actually like my dream school at the time. Like I wanted to go to Clark Atlanta, you know, really? but- That was my dream school. Yeah, too. but in fairness, I I made good grades in high school, but I don't think I, no one, I feel like I wasn't groomed to hunt for scholarships. 
it was either I wasn't groomed or I wasn't interested, but I don't think that I was, I can't remember back during that time, but I don't see myself being disinterested in doing that. I just don't think that, I think the information was there, but no one walked me through it. Kind of like how mm -hmm. we're learning to balance checkbooks and stuff in adult life. It's like, you knew what a checkbook was, but no one walked you through how to do that in school. So, um, <laughs> right. And so, um, Langston was affordable. I have two sisters who are twins who are five years younger than me. So I wanted to make sure like that. My parents didn't impose that pressure on me, but I knew that my sisters were going to school too. Like I come from that household, like you going to school. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I ended up going to Langston and it was, a, um, I had a pretty good experience. I won't take away from, cause it was a pretty good experience. However, in hindsight, I realized that a majority of my time in undergrad, I was in total survival mode. And so it was like once everything died down and I was able to really examine some things, um, I realized that I was in a, in a bit of a violent atmosphere, you know, being um, gender non-conforming, queer, um, but respected. You know, I was respected, um, but there was still acts of not physical violence, but uh, verbal violence and a lot of policing uh, that was going on. I'm, I'm in the Bible Belt. I'm in Oklahoma at an HBC. Like, mm. come on now. And so, uh, yeah, that's what made me choose my school. It was my parents' influence because Langston isn't even really known for journalism. They're more like agriculture and nursing, but they have a journalism department and I liked my professors. I was knocking down the internships and it's like, it's kind of like I made the best out of that situation. Um, oh, and College Hill, I forgot to mention that. I, College Hill helped shape my experience and Langston was season two of College Hill, they just never show it. But yeah, that's what made me choose Langston University, the school on the hill, go Lions. <laughs> so um, what made you choose Morehouse? I mean, it is Morehouse, but still. Um, you know, my, my me landing on Morehouse is is a lot less prestigious than um, you would think. I knew nothing of the school's history. I actually did not want to go there. Uh, I wanted to go to one school, and that was Howard. Howard was, oh. I knew I was going, going to go into journalism. They had a great journalism program, so it was obvious. Boom, it's Black, it's Howard. And and the reason behind the, the me wanting to go to a specifically black school is that I looked at at college as as an experience, and it was just like, do I want to? I can choose how I want to spend the next four years, and to me, it just seemed like at, at when I was a teenager and in high school, I had a diverse group of friends, but my rider dies, the people that like held me down and that you know mm -hmm. I messed with for real, for real, were my people. Yeah. And the, oftentimes I didn't actually get to spend a lot of time with them because I was in AP classes. Let's talk about it though, because I mean, when you're in National Honor Society, you know, you're, 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 um, you, you might have a little bit more vanilla in your ice cream. Oh, and yeah. so, um, I knew that I wanted to have that collegiate experience um, in, with with people that that looked like me, with people that rocked like I did, and kind of rock out like I did in high school, because I had so much fun in high school, and I wasn't planning on having fun in college, and I didn't. Um, but that was why I went, and I ended up at Morehouse because I applied to Morehouse and Howard at the same time, 
it must have been September. And um, I had received early admittance into Morehouse. I knew I was going there before Thanksgiving, maybe even before Halloween. And I did not hear from Howard until April. Um, oh my gosh. Yes. So I am a graduating senior in honor society. Like there's no, you know, I already accepted my, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so that was what landed me at, at, uh, at Morehouse. You know what, Justin, what was the, and you may or may not know this, but was there a huge price difference between Morehouse and Howard? Because Howard is expensive as hell. I just don't know Morehouse. They're, they're both very expensive. Uh, the price is something that I did not even consider. I was going into college. I applied for everything, the Millennium Gates and the Oprah and the this and the that. I applied for everything, got nothing. I got, you know, a Pell Grant and a little this or that enough to, you know, not shave something off of your books. But for me going into college, I didn't even consider the financial ramifications, um, which is just, I mean, it's mind blowing. But I went into college um, full debt. My, my experience, everything that, you know, my entire yeah. four years, study abroad, room and board, everything, debt, all of that. And you know what? I'd also be remiss if I did not acknowledge a different world's influence. Cause that oh, definitely, yes. It was like College Hill. It was like the media I was consuming. And much like Justin, even though it was multicultural for me in school, I was, I was rolling with the Blacks, you know? Um, but yeah, that, that, I had to bring up College Hill in a different world because those definitely helped influence, further influence my decision to attend an HBCU. Now, were your, were your expectations met or under, what is it called? Like, were your expectations met based off of like a different world? Because for me- uh, In certain regards, my college experience, uh, I had a good group of friends around me. Um, our friendships are all very different now because it used to be maybe like roughly eight of us, all girls. Mm -hmm. um, and every single one of my friends, because they're from either, they're from either Kansas City, Oklahoma City, Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, Shreveport, Louisiana. I, it, it's so in the culture there where everybody got families now. Not mm. saying that the, that the families aren't genuine. I'm not trying to imply that, but it's definitely a cultural thing. They're, they're in the Bible Belt. And all of my friends, our friendship has, has shifted a bit because now they're planning family trips. And guess who there's no room for? This girl over here in LA. I don't have a man and I don't have a little toddler running around. So um, <laughs> my expectations were met in a lot of different regards as far as like, yeah, the band experience, the sports. Um, what I really enjoyed my undergraduate experience uh, for was I did not, I never experienced a dorm. Langston University has apartments for everybody. So while I had roommates, I had my own room that locked and we just shared the common area, which would be the kitchen and the living room. And I shared a bathroom with one other person. So uh, that was definitely a perk. So in certain regards, it was met. And in other, in other regards, it, it was a flop. Um, mm. Well, I should say a flop. It was a shortcoming. Mm. And so, uh, yeah. It's, it's so interesting you say that. I think for me as well, because someone who spent their entire freshman year angry that I wasn't at Howard, um, I really didn't have any expectations. I didn't grow up watching Bill Co or uh, The Cosby Show or A Different well World. 
I had no concept of what college would be like at all, better yet for a black man. And so ending up at this institution that was like, very, I mean, that first week at Morehouse is so intense with, you know, the brotherhood and the mm-hmm. weight of legacy and Martin Luther King and just, it's just, and I did not buy it. I did not, I was, I had an attitude the entire time. I was like, all of this is, is fluff and BS, all of this preaching. I'm not here for it. No, 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 no. And um, that slowly, that slowly, um, actually wore away over time because uh you, you know you're, you're you're living there you're living amongst these people and you know you develop your your bonds and all of that stuff i do think however that what would be key for me and what would have been key for me back then in order to kind of have the full breadth of the experience is to kind of not have expectations set, like not think like going to Morehouse. So the notion mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. going to the, a place, an all male school, an all black school, you know, you're thinking that, oh, everybody is my brother and this is just gonna be like the most amazing, just like, you know, bonding family village experience ever in the world. And while that may be the case, I think on the same token, we are still all idiosyncratic individual beings who come from myriad different places and that brotherhood and and that all of the, those bonds and stuff have to be wrought from truth mm-hmm. and from you being who you are and not just you know i love you because you know you're a black man and you're no 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 because you can still be in a place an hbcu full of people that look like you and unless you are um you know living in your truth and connected with yourself and your purpose and where you want to be and why you're in that space then you know your experience won't necessarily be fulfilled even though you're in like this amazing you know black mecca but the one thing about it that i think was phenomenal and is phenomenal and and that we knew then and it just the significance of which grows over time is that when you are at an HBCU as a black person, you will never be in another space where you are surrounded by, you know, black professionals that are all like upperly mobile working toward their individual and collective goals. You will never be in a space like that again. Even if, you know, sometimes we go and we work for a different, you know, colorful, diverse enterprises, you'll never be in a space like that again. There's something that is just so special about the energy of a space whose sole purpose and dedication is for your betterment and your education. So I feel like a lot of people feel like there's this bubble that we're like the experience you're speaking to, they feel like it's a bubble. And once we come out, we're like a little clueless. I mean, of course I'm still in school, but what was, what was it like for you Going from uh, an HBCU environment where you're always around Black people, you're not worrying about, is this person racist? No, we all Black people. Um, to going to the uh, world. There's still homophobia, oh, transphobia, misogynism, colorism. Like, I, I always oh, tell you know, people, I oh. always tell people who went to PWIs, um, who who never had an HBCU experience? Because I feel like I feel like one of the leading arguments is about diversity, and I'm like, let me tell you something: mm. an HBCU yard is one of the most diverse places that you will ever experience because it reemphasizes the the fact 
that black people are not monolithic. Yes. We have the anime kids, the popular mean girls, the jocks, the track, like everything, the band people, like band was like, bands at HBCUs are literal subcultures. Mm -hmm. You don't know nothing except performance. Like they are, unless you're dating someone or seeing someone from the band, it is a total other world. It really is. And so um, for me, it was not, um, any type of culture shock, honestly. And I, I don't know if that comes from my experience pre-college. I, I knew, you know, if anything, when I left an HBCU, I was more aware of certain things, especially coming from a, from a prejudice angle. And that probably came with age as well. But I was more hyper alert to certain things than before, where I was able to go back in my past and say, well, well, maybe Miss Richardson was right. Like I didn't catch yes. that that was dog whistle race, uh, racism and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, for me, my experience was much like anybody else's in that if you're not nepotized, um, it's a cold experience. You know, they, they build you up to graduation and they hand you that piece of paper and they kick you out into the mm -hmm. cold, hard world. And it's sometimes even when you, you do know people that might get you indoors and things like that, that's not, it doesn't happen until it, it happens. People do a whole bunch of talking all day, yeah. but until, you know, people start moving mountains and, and kind of ensuring and holding onto their word, it just doesn't happen. And so for me, that was the most jarring experience. That was when I was experiencing like a quarter life crisis, as people call it. Um, that was my first bout with adult depression, like for real, for real, was that uh, I, I had excelled in undergrad. Every internship that I went after, for the most part, I got. So when you have these patterns and when we're conditioned a certain way within the American school system and that you do what you're supposed to do, you get said reward, I learned that that's not how the world works at all, at all. No one cares what you've done. No one cares where you've been. It's all, for the most part, my experience has been a divine combination of what I know and more importantly, who I know. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the hardest pill for me to swallow um, when I got, when, when it was post-grad. And I think, like I said, I think everyone experiences that. I have friends that are, you know, Greek and D9 organizations and it's like, okay, that might mean something in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but you might get out here to Los Angeles and think that you, it, you know, things are sweet. You applying with your soror and, and she's, you know, the boss, the woman you're applying with is your soror. That means nothing. It might mean nothing out here in Los Angeles, or it might not carry the gravity that it might carry down in, you know, Jackson, Mississippi. You get mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So everything is so nuanced. And that was, like I said, that the shell shock for me was not, oh, now I'm around different types of people. The shell shock for me was unlearning what I had learned my entire life within the American school system and within the university system of you do what you're supposed to do or you excel, you exceed expectations and you're, you're granted said reward because that is fundamentally just not how the world works, unfortunately. Wow. Very true. Very true. Um, my experience... Interestingly enough, uh, what was the question? <laughs> uh, your, your experience transitioning from HBCU into the real world. Into the real world, yes. The reason why I was distracted is because I was thinking about Char, when Char was talking about the diversity of being like on the yard and that just really caught me up because that was why I said your experience is based on 
your ability to kind of be your full self because let's say you know i was i was coming from st louis so being a being um an emo boy in st louis is not a thing you know like if you wanted to be that that's cool but you you're not gonna be that there but let's say that was my truth and who i really was well when i got to school that was my chance to like okay you know what let me bring out my jinkos and my my mascara and my everything and take it to the nth degree because there is going to you know if as much as i can invest in you know who i am that's how my light will shine and that's how i'll connect with you know who i want to connect with and and have you know that experience that we think that you know black college should be so that was what that point was bringing it back to uh transitioning into the real world i think um you know when you come from an HBCU, they pump our heads up. So we, our heads are pumped up. We're ready for the real world. And I had internships as well. I had one really, and I, I had an internship and I studied abroad. So, and I worked consistently throughout my entire college career. Wow. So I always felt that I was like super mature and super just like ready. Like I felt like I was more ready for you know the real world than anything. And the, the crazy thing, what, what, what was the, the most, um, the biggest shift for me was actually something that I don't really hear speak, spoke on, is that I went from, you know, being this 21, I was turning 22 year old man uh, that had been, you know, you're like a kid, you know, your whole life. But then when you transition into that workplace, all of a sudden I was a teacher. And so now I'm faculty and over these students, I was 22, my youngest students were 19. So being, learning what it meant to actually be an adult and to be an adult among adults where I'm 22 and I'm ranking the same as this 56 year old person, you know, they might be tenured or whatever, but it's like, we're both adults. And I had to figure out, okay, I've been in a child's place my whole life, which for a black person, a child's place is a whole nother world. Okay, Mm -hmm. I was a respectful church boy. So I was really in a child's place. And so to figure out how to, to 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 fully like to step into who I was as a professional as an adult and as a black man it was kind of it was kind of a lot um but I I think that it it was um in no way did college prepare me for that necessarily it's more so I think it's really it's really like Char said it's who you are and for me it wasn't who I knew it was what I knew and it was and it, it, it was about like applying all of that at, at the same time because there is no no handbook so a lot of people this is like a, a terrible segue <laughs> feel like hbcus aren't really necessary anymore i've heard people say like um we should be trying to build with other people and what is it called not the diversity of it all the um integration of it all okay and they they kind of just were like we are past HBCUs. Do you do you still feel like there's an important the HBCU has an important place in our society in our well definitely in our culture? But do you feel like they're still needed? Yes. <laughs> Short answer: Yes, I absolutely do feel that way. People, I feel tend to forget that uh, HBCUs open their doors to everyone. It's just a matter of who applies, and I knew plenty of people of other uh, ethnic backgrounds who were at my school on scholarship. Um, And so I feel like 
people feel like you have to be black to attend an HBCU, which is not the case. Right. Um, I don't think that they should HBCU that we don't have a need for them anymore because they are safe spaces. Um, I can't attempt to romanticize the past with shoulda, woulda, couldas, but I can't speak to what my experience would have been as a gender non-conforming queer woman um, at the time uh, going to a PWI. Because I also had friends that experienced things like, oh, I went in, I hopped in the elevator to go up to my dorm and there was, you know, a noose hanging in the elevator, or I saw KKK flyers at Denny's when I was leaving the club, like recruitment flyers. I didn't experience that. I mean, there was, right, I mean, I was in the middle of rural Oklahoma, so our, my school was like witness protection program, practically. You ain't gonna find nobody out there, but um, I felt that um, it was a safe space, just even with professionalism, right? HBCUs naturally just become fashion shows. Yes. And <laughs> I had friends that went to, you know, their PWIs and, and were conditioned. And this goes hand in hand with respectability, yes. But that were, that, that were just so shocked that, like, I was, like, wearing heels to class every day. Like, my uniform, especially junior and senior year, was skinny jeans, like, second, second pair of skin skinny jeans, mm. a, a V-neck a blazer and obnoxiously tall stiletto heels. And that is how I would, that is how I would carry myself. And I have my little blonde fade, honey. You can tell me nothing. But I have friends also who, uh, one of my best girlfriends went to PWI and she was like wearing like her sophomore class of 2006 hoodie and some SpongeBob pajama pants to class, you know? And and I you really like, don't what? see that at HBC at all. I, no, 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 no. You become a pariah. You better work something out. <laughs> and so um, just to answer your question, because I'm so long-winded, um, HBCUs still definitely have a place within today's society. Um, and, and, and some of the times, you know, in a, in a lot of cases, when it comes to pricing, they're cheaper. Um, you get a quality education. Professors typically are from all different walks of life. People have all different types of experiences and work histories, typically. Um, and I just, I, I think that they're still necessary. I don't, I don't think, I would have to be presented with a solid argument uh, for me to entertain the notion of getting rid of HBCUs. Let me tell you something. HBCUs are as necessary as the Black family, as necessary as the Black church. They are institutions in the community they there are people who will never have a black professor until they get to an hbcu mm -hmm. there are people that will never see or hear from someone that works in the same field that they work in or or will can even be inspired to do something that they've never heard of until they get to an hbcu there an hbcu is you know we call it mother morehouse it is a place where we were nurtured for who we were because of who we were, not in spite of who we were. And so, I mean, I think that the purpose of, of to, to, to question the purpose of HBCUs is, is to question the purpose of education itself. Now, okay, so one thing I've noticed and being, especially being so close to Morehouse, um, y'all do something different over there at Morehouse because it's just a different type of, like we have the HBCU experience, but it's like, I don't know, I wouldn't say militant, but it seems like it's so like, we are building men versus like um, at Clark, it's more of like, 
I don't know how to even describe it. It's just not that uptight type of feeling or whatever. What are y'all doing over there? Because y'all just do something different. Yeah, I think that um, Morehouse's values were set in a time when being Black was a death sentence. And being a Black man was something that it was kind of like, it was, it was kind of like, um, I'll put it like this without getting too deep, because um, when I was there, I didn't buy into all of, you know, a lot of that stuff, a lot of the, the, the rhetoric. To me, it, it seemed dogmatic and being someone that grew up in the church and being someone that grew up in the church as a, a queer person, I was just, I always had a problem with people barking down things um, to, and trying to get you to ascribe to a certain set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. However, I think that knowing where we have sat in society as Black men and knowing how the Black family structure has been destroyed over the years and has, was never actually truly, <laughs> was always kind of established despite all of these things that were attacking it. I think that, you know, that was, that's a tough question. <laughs> Look, I'm with a, a million different tangents. I think the, the short of it is that, you know how they would say, uh, 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 if, if the, the, you have like, if a, if a family has a son and a daughter, they would say that they raise the, they, you raise your daughters differently than you raise your sons. Right. There's different values that you need to teach your sons than you need to teach your daughters. I think that there are, the school is not perfect and there are some problematic things in some of the ways that they have tried to um, prescribe masculinity and prescribe blackness. However, I think that the intention behind building strong men and um, kind of creating a culture where we know who we are, we know our value and we know our worth, sometimes it might go a little bit overboard, but I think that is just in reaction to a world in, a, a world in which you're told that you're nothing. Here's the one place that you can come where you're gonna be told that you're something and we're gonna build you up with that confidence and with the knowledge that you, know, you deserve the best in the world, that you have the right and the ability to pursue your dreams just like anybody else. And I think you know, just some of that natural bravado, some of that masculinity, some of that almost even purely African in a way showmanship kind of comes through in the way that we have tried to, you know, figure out how do you do this? Because at the end of the day, no one knows exactly. I think parents will tell you like, you know, I might not have been perfect, but I did my best. And I think that's kind of the, 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 the thing that where Morehouse, where we see kind of some of the things where it's like, okay, y'all need to calm down. You're doing too much. Where it's like, you know, they're like that, that parent where it's like, you know, we might not be perfect, but we're going to do what we think is best to try to get you off the path in the right way. Lord have mercy. I'm so exhausted. I've been trying to believe you got me with that one, but I feel a thousand percent where you're coming from. You're listening to The Conversation with Khalif. So Shar, a little earlier you mentioned colorism. And to be honest, I never experienced colorism until I started attending an HBCU. I, um, oh, really? Yes, I was, I was very much, I mean, 
I went to school with a bunch. I was, but I I still didn't. And you didn't experience colorism there. I did not. I went to um, a little bat. Well, that's not a little Baptist church. It's a church called Calvary Baptist Church. That's where I grew up. But I never experienced color. So the first time somebody looked at me and said, "You're a light skin." Calvary Missionary Baptist Church, eighty third and Jeffrey. Oh, okay, because I grew up in the church, and the church that I attended was Calvary Baptist Church, but a different one. I was about to say, now hold on, Khalif. (laughs) (laughs) Not that we would have gone to the same church or not. Oh, you would have remembered me. I had a presence in that church house, okay? (laughs) It wasn't the one that has like the arc look, right? No, mine was uh, actually in the suburbs. Mine was on Glenwood Dyer Road in Glenwood. Oh, okay. But like I was saying, up until... um, uh, attending an HBCU, I'd never really experienced much uh, colorism in terms of people calling you uh, a light bride and, oh, you think you this, and uh, attacking or rather challenging my blackness, like saying, you're black, but you but you light skin. Like there was a whole, if you're not dark, you're not black, black. And the majority of people I went to high school with were not black. And black was black was black was black. But I digress to say, did you two ever experience any colorism in at an HBCU? I can't say that I experienced uh, colorism, well, blatant colorism when I was an undergrad, but I certainly experienced uh, degrees of misogyny, degrees of transphobia, um, for sure, without question. Um, and like I mentioned at the top of this interview, certain degrees of policing. And just listening to Justin's response about how uh, some of the conduct, I guess, at Morehouse, it's like, you know, um, I have toyed with the idea of intent versus impact. Like, maybe they didn't mean it this way, or and I just heard it, or it hit this way. But a lot of the stuff that I experienced was, I, I had to deal with a constant barrage of people almost discouraging me. But in different ways, it wasn't flat out discouragement, but it was like planting little seeds that I'm so glad didn't, you know, manifest. But um, yeah, I mean, I can't fully endorse my alma mater as a school for LGBT people. If you do not first know who you are, Mm. if that makes sense. I entered my undergraduate career at 18, and yes, I was just as sloppy as any other 18-year-old, but I knew who I was in that time, and I think that that ended up serving me in, in, in the long run, um, but it was, and I know that, you know, pro- professors didn't mean no harm, you know, at HBCUs, our professors are sometimes like aunties and uncles, yes. they don't mean no harm, but there was a lot of censorship. There was a lot of policing, um, and like I mentioned earlier, violence, but I want to emphasize that it's not physical violence, because no one ever put their hands on me, um, but verbal and emotional. Mm. Um, but I persevered. Like I said, I, I felt like I was on autopilot, because <laughs> it was like, la di da di da di da until I was able to really sit with and unpack some things and and revisit some journals and, and even sometimes reading old statuses. I'm like, ugh, um, I let that slide or I didn't challenge that, but I didn't feel a great deal of support mm. across the board. Um, like I had a few people in my corners, but I think that people were just so hell bent. Cause keep in mind, I was unconventional 
in my uh, presentation. And I, I was, I forced you to respect me. There was no way that you could disrespect me. I'm a wordsmith. I had the vocabulary. Like I subscribed enough to respectability mm-hmm. for you not to disrespect me, if that made sense. Because while I was unconventional, I wasn't deemed a quote unquote hot mess. Mm-hmm. And I knew what I was doing. I, you know, I was writing for the paper. I was working for the TV station. Like there was still a certain level of, of respectability that I presented. And I think that is what ultimately saved me, if I'm being fully honest. If I did not have respectability politics on my side at the time to get me through that experience, um, I for sure would have probably been uh, bulldozed because I was still relatively popular. Um, and so there, it's a whole bunch of different components that, that went into that experience, but all of that stuff is there. Just like I mentioned about how diverse HBCU campuses are, Mm-hmm. With that diversity comes a whole bunch of other stuff. There is fat phobia, there is transphobia, there is homophobia, there is misogyny, there is colorism, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And so, uh, yeah, I'm not taking back my... It is, it is a safe haven. Don't get me wrong, it really is. Mm-hmm. But it's like, those things are just inescapable. There's patriarchy. Oh my God, there's... Pa- like people who will unwillingly, you know, stand blindly support and stand by, by men who are utter trash, you know, mm-hmm. will be willing to throw women under the bus and not even flinch, you know, and I, and even this is women doing this to other women as well, right. you know, so it, uh, it's weird, you know, you know, we, we have a rich culture at HBCUs, but we gotta keep in mind a lot of blacks are very conservative. A lot of blacks, there's still that universal religious experience in post. So it's not really, it's a safe haven, but I can't really say that it's a sense of unadulterated freedom because the the oppression is still definitely there and it shows up frequently. Hardly gave me a break. So, I honestly, yeah, that's what I think about that. When I first came to an HBCU, it was, I had a similar experience because it was like, it was kind of like a hush-hush topic to talk about like anything other than uh, men or no cisgendered heterosexual people. And it was like, there was no space for, I mean, no space of encouragement. There was no space of support for anyone who didn't fit into that like mold or whatever. Yeah. Because the, I feel like there's this, this thing, like we have to do this as the black people in the black race, we have to do this and that and third, yeah. but it's like, we are, so multifaceted, so many dimensions. They want to bury that. They want to be, there's no safe space for LGBT students. At least in my school, there was not. You know, I had the, the one, um, most of my friends were cheerleaders and the cheerleading advisor was one of my biggest allies. But she really uh, championed me, even though, even with that, there was still a level of, can you tone it down? Hmm. You know, like she didn't mean it like, and that was only occasionally, you know? Um, but she was all for, you know, Charlotte, your freak flag fly type thing. And so, um, you know, then there were just a few faculty and staff members that were were really championing for me. And there was also a lot of group think, you know, Mm -hmm. and weird, my, my experiences with cisgender heterosexual men, um, were just, they ran the gamut. Oh my God. They They ran the gamut during my undergrad, but I was also a very different girl. I was a little bit wilder, but they they definitely ran the gamut. And I got my feelings hurt in a lot of different ways. And I had to unlearn and unpack 
a lot of things as well um, because of that experience. Like, you know, it makes you grow, but it also can also break your spirit a little bit. Mm -hmm. Dealing with some of like the politics that come with existing with who you are, like as who you are. I was very, I was a very popular girl. Like, you know, like I, you know, it felt like a magnifying glass was on me. You know, and things got very immature and group thinky. I remember I let someone use a Scantron during a test. By the time the test was over, there were rumors that we were sleeping together. Like, I'm, I'm talking about that level of immaturity, you know? So, um, yeah. You know, I think, I think Black Twitter is a great analogy for the HBCU experience because you, there are these really great moments right and then you'll go into the comments and you'll just and you'll see from the same community that yes. moment you will see like like what so you 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 want this person to abandon their child what you yeah. think that, like you would just see people advocating for the most ridiculous crazy things and these and sometimes these people will be very intelligent they'll have degrees and this and that have high-ranking jobs and that same level of kind of shock and awe of the perspectives within your community exists on the same level and on, on a college campus, especially a black college campus. And I would almost say it's, it's hyper, it's hyper realized because you are in a space where, you know, everybody is super young and they're like, they, it, it, it has those uh, dynamics where, you know, like those high school dynamics where, you know, you have the people that are super, you know, loud and braggadocious and very this and that, and that kind of drive the tone of what's going to be what. And so it's the same thing, like the same thing that exists in the macro exists in the micro. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's interesting that, it, it, it would be, I, even though it was only, you know, I graduated from, from college a little over 10 years ago, but the, the landscape has changed so, so, so much with the, the proliferation of, of social media and all of that. And I honestly feel like 10 years ago in college feels like 20 years ago. And as far as how far we've progressed, uh, I think, uh, socially, but you know, you get back into some of those, you know, you go back to, to some of our schools and we are very much behind the times and you'll see those things, like you said, you know, colorism and, and things that it's like, okay, we're supposed to be the best of the best. We're the, the top 10% of whatever, whatever. Shouldn't we be beyond X, Y, Z? And it's like, uh, actually you see where X, Y, Z began for a lot of some of these things mm -hmm. that there are deep rooted, um, deep-rooted uh, issues that we've kind of accepted as truths that we have to then start breaking down. And stop further perpetuating because the, the, the larger question is who is working towards breaking all of this down? Absolutely. No one, at least in my experience, no, not, not a one person. You know, every, everything that I just rattled off was reaffirmed in a lot of different situations. Like who is working to dismantle these sometimes harmful and toxic cultures that are perpetuated in our institutions. And, and that's our maybe today they are, but when I was in school, child, no one. No, the name of the game was was um, assimilation um, yeah. back then. And I think that maybe now, the reason why I say it's, it's a different landscape now is I think maybe now, you know, people are more advocating for different things and there's- oh, yeah, I, I think so. 
you know. And a, yeah, and in and, and a, a post Me Too society, exactly. I, like you said, what's in the macro is also going to show up in the micro. So I could totally see that, Justin. Absolutely. Now, in my experience, sometimes I find like there's this whole the HBCU pride ver- like uh, versus what's it called? Oh, Jesus, I lost it and I'm trying PWI? to act like I got it still. Huh? PWI? Yes, there we go. Um, the pride between the PWI and the HBCU experience. Like a lot of people that I've talked to say that they feel like we're arrogant. They feel like we're woke, woke. And like everybody else is like, you haven't gone through this experience. So you're not on my level type thing. And I just, I'm like, but y'all don't understand some of the things that we went through in an HBCU experience that you just don't get anywhere else. But what are your thoughts? I don't, I'm not one of those girls. I'm not the one shoving down. Like the most you'll get from me is maybe friendly banter when we're, you know, sitting around a table and maybe some drinks are flowing. But I'm not jumping in PWI alum's face and and riding them about. Because, I mean, what does it matter? We're literally on, for the most part, on even playing fields in the real world. So what what do those nuances even matter about an experience that happens? happened in yesteryear's past who cares you know um but i do know that there are some people who are you know mm-hmm. like that and i just think it's, it's wasted time wasted energy uh, some people are very very prideful of their experiences and they have every right to be but i don't think that it is productive to crap on other people who mm-hmm. might not have gotten that experience but in the other on the other hand i don't like the term like because I have heard that criticism as well. Like Shart is always fishing for a cause or looking for something. And it's like, no, I'm not looking for anything or fishing for a cause. I feel like my experience, both lived experience um, in the real world and lived experience as an HBCU student have allowed me to zoom out of a lot of experiences and examine things for what they are. And because mm-hmm. someone might not have shared in that walk, it might look a certain way to them because the culture at PWIs are typically very, very, very different. And I have, you know, friends that went to PWIs who experienced, you know, the larger student body silencing them or attempting to silence them on injustices, which is not really something that HBCU students endure depending Mm -hmm. on the characters at play, right? (laughs) Endure. Um, And so... I don't know that passive way really at looking at things that sometimes passive way that is perpetuated from, from certain folks. I know an active way. I see it. I'm going to call it out because it's wrong. You get what I'm saying? And that's yes, not in yes. any way. Cause I don't want my words to get twisted. That's not in any way me implying that PWI people are cowardice. Cause that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I have been criticized for being able to clock something instantly and I'm going to say something about it. I'm not, I don't have to play the emotional tug of war with it because I see it for what it is. Right, I know right. it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, versus someone who might feel the need to play that tug of war because of the conditioning that they might have went through when they went, went and had their experience. You know, human nature is to stratify ourselves. So my experience at Morehouse was we all came to Morehouse from from different places in the world. And then once we got there, it was like, all right, which, what dorm are you in? 
All right, what dorm you on? What floor are you on? What floor are you on? Where are you from? And we literally, so I knew what, what dorms everybody in, what floor they was from, and whether they represented the North, South, East, West, the islands, or the UK. Because <laughs> when we got there, we just had to like, you know, and I think that's human nature in some ways to separate yourselves and to have pride in where you come from. Um, I think that anything beyond, like Char said, you know, silly, silly banter about like, you know, because even we do that among our schools where it's like, you know, oh, HU, which one's the, which, which is the real HU? You know, is it Howard or is it Hampton? You know, like we do. And I think anything outside of jokes is just childish because like, you know, we all have our individual experiences just because you come from a two parent home and I come from a single parent home does not make you a better person than me. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. we can't just use the, the different things like our, our, our experiences. They make us who, 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 who we are. And there's really no, no sense, no purpose in, in trying to uh, create uh, some sort of hierarchy based on what our experiences were, because at the end of the day, we here, we made it, you know. Right. Do you feel like there's this pressure to be like black enough? Because I I felt that my first two years of school, I was just like, it was like, if you haven't seen this movie, you're not black enough. If you haven't done this thing, or if you don't like this food, you're not black enough. You like, know, I again hearkening back to my last answer, I feel like if it's something that goes beyond friendly banter it's so silly yeah because i tease my friends all the time i have a friend one of my good friends and colleagues just saw waiting to excel for the first time last week he's also never seen friday he's never there's so much black cinema that he has not seen and what struck what blew me away was that he is from the south and normally when i have these conversations it's people that are born and raised west coast you know mm. um and I tease him, but it's friendly. It's not like I'm right. railing against him and, and roasting and gagging. But then there are certain people who feel the need to have, uh, to, to be gatekeepers of blackness, so to speak. And so there are certain credentials that, uh, that, that you must meet. But again, we're not monolithic. Sometimes things are regional. Sometimes, you know, I'm, I don't know why you haven't watched the movie. Maybe you were raised in a, a, a strict religious household you know what i'm saying maybe you it, it's not interesting to you so i think that that's unfair to kind of to kind of deem to kind of cross your arms and deem what's black and you ain't black right. enough that is just so silly to me personally and that's the beautiful thing about a, 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 an hbcu campus is there is every type of black person that you can imagine in the world there. And they're all black, whether they're from the islands, whether they talk like they from the hood, or whether they speak with a really proper accent and you can't even tell whether they're black or not. At the end of the day, what you learn at a place like that, that is that you can't look at a person and tell if they're black. You can't talk to a person on the phone and tell if they're black. Being black is not a color. It is not a uh, hair texture. It is not a music taste. It is a lived experience. And I think that, you know, we kind of, we, 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 I think that, that in the face of everything that we experience in this world today, I think there is sometimes a, a, a need to, a desire to protect blackness in a way mm -hmm. where we want to say, 
Like, no, those aren't Bo Derek braids, sweetie. Those are, you know, <laughs> braids. And this is where those they- aren't boxer braids, those are cornrows. <laughs> you know, exactly. And so I think that they that we do, you know, have a sense to protect what is ours because we don't necessarily want to see um what is what but is rightfully black being like taken taken away and being profited from or or things like that. But when it comes to, you know, there is nothing, even though coming from an HBCU and I don't care if you are as, as beige, as light as white, or if you're as dark as the night sky, no one is a proprietor of blackness. And, um, but the nature of blackness is to challenge that and i think that's the beauty of you know of of us is that you know we are full of so many different we, we we're we're prismatic we're dynamic we are contradictory in our nature and that is why we're so amazing and i think that when you you know kind of get into these spaces without an open mind then you know you can you can find so much contradiction that can just be like you know what what is it? What, how is it? But at the end of the day, like, you know, we, we leave these experiences knowing that we are who we are and nothing in this world can take it from us. And mm -hmm. sometimes that might come off as braggadocious or as overly confident, but really I think it is the, the pride of self that we are all as people, uh, we all deserve to have. And as black people, we, often weren't given as black people in America the, the 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 ability to be proud of yourself as a you know black professional educated person in this country. And so, you know, if that comes off a little a little sharp or a little, you know, whatever, then so be it. So I wanted to touch on the life after college. So me and I feel like everyone I know who's graduating anytime soon, they're just terrified. They're like, what's next? Because if you don't have a job or an internship lined up, it's like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Am I supposed to go work down the street at the grocery store? It's like, there's this whole fear surrounding what's next after graduation. So I noticed, uh, not noticed, when I was preparing for today, I uh, watched one of your videos on YouTube where you were talking about um, just your experience from moving from Chicago to LA, moving from college to back to Chicago. So if you don't mind just sharing some of that. So for me, my big wake up call, like I mentioned earlier, um, was about unlearning what I had been conditioned to believe. And so uh, as far as just the way that the world works. And so when I graduated, I just thought that I'd be able to apply for jobs. I mean, I was looking for jobs prior to graduating because all of my friends in different fields, you know, who were accountants and business majors and things, they were announcing that they were stepping into jobs like around April. Like we mm. hadn't even graduated yet, but they had things lined up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, um, and so for me, I did not have that. And um, I ended up moving back to Chicago. That was a priority of mine because I knew for sure that I did not want to uh, be in Oklahoma at all. And that's no shade against Oklahoma. I just was never an Oklahoma girl. Like mm -hmm. I knew as soon as I landed off that plane that it was like, okay, 
this ain't for me. And then there were no affirmative things around me that's like, oh, stay. Like, they were still developing at the time. Like, the basketball team was brand new. You know, we're from Chicago. Like, I was born into the Bulls. I was born into, like, there were just certain things missing out of city life for me Mm -hmm. in order for me to be productive. Um, And so I moved back to Chicago because in my mind, I was like, oh, I have certain different connects there. Connects at ABC7, um, WLS. I have connects at the Chicago Sun-Times and I have the resume to support all of my claims. Like, yes, I'm fresh out of school, but I have two internships. I'm professional. Like I'm going, I'm rattling down the list and nothing happened. And so I ended up spiraling a bit into a bit of a depression because um, I was mailing out packages, not emailing. I was mailing out packages, like stacks of manila envelopes across the country to try to lock down a job and nothing was happening. Um, and at the same time, I was very fearful because it, a lot of times in news, to be a reporter, you start out in small town USA and you work your way up to the larger markets. And I got scared thinking about, okay, Shar. We cannot be driving past cows on the way to work. And that wasn't out of pride. That was out of safety. A single black woman of the trans experience, um, you know, maybe in like Dubuque, Iowa, driving. And and then there was also that fear, right, of that, oh, you know, because I have what the streets call passing privilege. I didn't want to get down there and then have someone be enthusiastic to out me because we know that that's a reality. Mm-hmm. And then now what does that look like? You know what I'm saying? Or do some investigating. And, you know, I just didn't have time for it. And then, and that does not mean that I'm ashamed of who I am. But just for the time, when I graduated, it was 2011, 2012. And we weren't talking about things, you know, as a nation at the rate that we're talking about them now. And so... I remember that I had a job, a potential job lined up at WGNO, New Orleans ABC affiliate that fell through. So that was another thing. And so I, what I ended up doing is I went back to my roots. I worked at Sephora when I was an undergrad um, and I had done makeup. That's how I earned money in undergrad. I was, I was waxing brows and doing makeup for, for pageants and dances and things like that. But the brows, I know how to sculpt a brow. Like I was the head <laughs> brow tech at Beat, Beats Aesthetic Bar in Lincoln Mall, honey. You better know. <laughs> and so doing that out of my room in Scholars Inn, um, that supplemented me. And so, I, and, and I love beauty. I, I'm a beauty enthusiast. And so I went back to, I think I, I started working at Live Nation first. I was working um, with Ticketmaster and Live Nation, but just as like someone who would be on the floor to upgrade your tickets. Like I wasn't on a corporate level. I just needed a a job. And then from there I went back to cosmetics. And then I decided just cold flat out that I was moving to LA. I'd had some conversations with some people who had told me I need to move to LA. And my big thing was, I was at 26 at the time. I was at home for about maybe two years at home in Chicago. And by the grace of God, my mom opened her doors back up to me. Cause you know, a lot of people's parents be like, once you're gone, you're gone, you know? And uh, I decided to move to LA. I didn't really have a plan. I didn't have anything lined up. I did not know anyone. I had never visited LA, but my thing was, my idea sounds crazy, mom, but I need you to believe in me. This is what I was telling my family. I need you to believe in me because I felt at the time that I was, if I didn't move when I moved, I was going to end up in the land of shoulda, woulda, couldas. And that gave me great anxiety. 
I never want, because I worked with women like that. You know, I, when you work in cosmetics, you work with women that are 68 and 18. And mm -hmm. I've heard all different types of stories. And, oh, I had the opportunity to do this, but I chose, I didn't want to be that girl. And I did not want to be behind a makeup counter my whole life. And so, yeah, I really winged it moving out here because like I said, I did not know anyone. I had never visited <laughs> and I became an Uber queen, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of like a condensed version of my story. And the only reason that I did that, and I tried finding jobs in Texas. I got connections in Texas. I got connections in Chicago and nothing was moving for me. And I was feeling mm -hmm. stagnant. I was feeling complacent. And more importantly, I was feeling unfulfilled. Right. And I was like, I need to try this. Even if I fall flat on my face, I'll be able to say, at least I tried. Or maybe I'll try again and, and tweak this and prepare better in this way type thing. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was my driving force. For me, it was not easy. Now, I had a classmate who got a job right out, up out the gate. And now she is a, an anchor in Rochester, New York. But she got a job, we interned together and she got a job right out of the gate. And I'll never forget feeling that pressure. Like, cause I thought, you know, she's good, but she ain't me. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I, I was looking at all different types of like, like I said, recipes. I felt like people, certain people might've been sabotaging me, you know, disclosing sensitive information surrounding my identity before people really even gave me a fighting chance and really mm -hmm. looked at what was on paper, you know, to try to, you know, dissuade people, I guess, uh, for even entertaining my uh, application or reel or anything. And so, uh, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. It, it, it was a lot for sure. So what, what made you choose LA out of all places? I chose LA. I have two sisters. Both of my sisters now live in New York City and they're not roommates, but I chose LA because at the time I was like, okay, I know that I, you know, I'm a news girl. And I was thinking in terms of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I do entertainment news, right? So I'm going out to Hollywood. In hindsight, and I don't know, because they say that people do this all the time. People in New York romanticize LA. People in LA romanticize New York. Um, I feel in hindsight that New York might be a little bit more my speed because in LA, things are a bit slower. Um, and you know, in Chicago, we used to fast walking and, and doing what we got to do and taking care of what we got to take care of. And then it felt things like, like things were a bit more sensitive in LA. Like no was a bad word. Like I joke and call LA the land of maybe. Just tell me mm. no so I can move on. You don't have to tell me maybe in an attempt to spare my feelings. Tell mm. me no so that I can move on. But people, I don't know. It's, it's the culture of business here is very different than what I, I'm used to. But I do love LA. I really do love LA. And I love all of the opportunities that have been afforded to me in LA. Um, but yeah, I do romanticize the East Coast a little bit because it, everything, you know, the grass always looks greener, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and I hear, I know people that are bi-coastal or have moved out there and once lived here and they rave about it. So I'm like, oh, do I need to pack it up one day? <laughs> but um, so yeah, that that is what made me choose LA. It was more so, I looked at New York as hard news and Good Morning America and the Today mm -hmm. Show. And LA yeah. was like, E entertainment news that that's where i'm headed i i, I want to talk about light and fluffy things i do not want to talk about um things that are considered hard news because it just when i did work in hard news it was just too emotionally taxing for me mm -hmm. so i was very intentional on los angeles 
So, okay, so, ow. <laughs> One thing I have noticed, and this is just me, this is not even a part of anything, but I've noticed it's hard for me to separate the work, not the work of it all, but like my passion versus who I am as a person. And I kind of get really wrapped up into the show and trying to help other people look, feel, and be their best selves every week. And all of a sudden it hit me, I was like, sometimes I'm like, what do I have outside of that? So have you ever been in a place where you feel like you got lost in the sauce of the things you do? Um, I can I can answer that from from my POV. And you tell me if I'm on the right track um, for what you were thinking. There was a time specifically as as a journalist where I was the senior producer for an outlet that was covering Black interest stories, Black culture, politics, news, social justice, all of that. The only outlet of its kind at the time. And so day in and day out, I was, you know, morning to night, I'm digging into every tragedy, every, you know, dark thing that was going on in our community. And all of this stuff is uncovered or and, and undercovered. Mm-hmm. And so for a, about a year, you know, I was just, the weight of that work was, it was, it was exhausting. I would do that during the week. And then at NB, I would be at NBC on the weekends doing, uh, doing uh, hard news for, for the network. And so being that what we do, like you said, is passion driven work. And when I'm doing stories that are reflective uh, a reflection of, of our community, it, it, it hits home even more, you know, cause I'm looking at these stories that could have been my auntie, my brother, my cousin, my sister, my mama. And so I actually, that, I was actually, um, the, that company folded and it was the break that I needed. You know, I had to then begin a self-care practice and I realized when I was burnt out that there was no way I would be able to continue the work had I not found ways to restore myself. And I think, you know, over the past, over the past five years or so, words like mindfulness, um, mental health, self-care and all of those things have very much come into you know the public conversation and I think those of us that work in the media are often the last ones to really apply what that actually means like we're we'll we'll be the first to report on it you know they say meditation and the calm and all of this you know but with what what we do is so self-involved it is hard work it is history it is the future and it's all in this one little flap of skin and so um yeah it, it takes the actual work the same work that i had to put into you know eking out my career and and finding out who i was as a professional and refining my craft i had to put into then my garbage in garbage out process into my restoration into you know finding out what made me whole so that i could do what i needed to do if that answers your question it it does because i i don't there were um not even there were are some days where i'm just like when am I not going to be talking about what I'm doing? Like, just have a regular conversation. Like, I found myself interviewing people I'm just talking to in real life sometimes. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Separation of church and state, player. Literally. Um, yeah, because it's one of those things. Because just a, a little segue, being a, a, I have a bunch of titles, but the main one that I, I lead with is a producer. 
And being a producer is not only what I do, it's who I am. Mm -hmm. And that is a very big challenge when you are, you know, producing your life, you're producing your friendships, you're producing everything that happens in your life. And then people will start to call on you for that. Can I tell you how many weddings I've I've, you know, accidentally managed, how many, you know, little things people will, will call on you for what they know that you're good at. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll have you, you'll be planning events, you'll be, you know, a, a go to person for this or that, because people know, you know, and so I think that one, for, for ourselves, figuring out that balance of, okay, this is a conversation, not an interview. And, you know, take kind of taking a step back sometimes, one. And then two, a lot, uh, adjusting the access that we allow people to have to us. What we do is a service. Mm -hmm. And we give of ourselves with, without getting anything back. It's thankless, thankless work. Mm -hmm. And I think some, you know, we're just used to doing that on uh we're just used to doing that just because you know that's who we are but when you get a little bit older and you spend a little bit more time doing this and you know you do learn that no is not a bad word and whether it is or it's not you're gonna use it on today because you know you <laughs> you have to have some time and some space for yourself well i am just in awe and so grateful just to have had the opportunity to have a conversation with the both of you today it really is my honor and privilege to speak with you today and thank you to everyone at home for listening um, to today's episode but before I let you guys go um, is there anything that you Shar or Justin have going on that you'd like to inform everyone at home about no not really just you know keep your eyes to the streets your eyes and ears to the streets I'm working on some fun projects right now you can follow me on social media as Shar says so that's Shar with an s says so if you want to, you know, chat or if you want to, you know, see what I got going on. And that's really all, you know, just staying afloat in the corona, in the, in the mm -hmm. quarantine. So, yeah, that's it for me. And, yes, I also recommend following Char Says So, <laughs> Char with an S. Um, I'm Justin at just.pye. I'm far less interesting. Um, Are you? Uh, <laughs> I find you very interesting, Justin. Well, that's uh, that's only in the close friend section. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, Khalif, for 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 hosting this conversation. It's actually really, really inspirational and awesome to see yeah. someone like you that is like still in school doing your thing. This is what we do. What you're doing right now. This is what you're going to be getting paid to do. Um, and I look forward to to watching your meteoric rise. Yeah. Thank you for having us, Cleve. This was fun. And I hope I hope I was able to answer everyone's questions adequately. Because I've been talking since 9.30, okay? Look, I'm a little delusional right now. I'm a little uh -oh. delirious right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening. I really love and appreciate each and every one of you. I receive your love, your support, your, your, your positive vibes and energy. I would not be able to do what I'm doing if it wasn't for you. So I really love you and I really thank you so much. For all the latest and greatest updates on The Conversation with Khalif, make sure you follow me on all social media platforms at The Conversation with Khalif. That's The Conversation spelled with a K instead of a C with K-A-L-E-A-F. I will see you soon. Bye-bye.